Hello, thanks for listening to this latest podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Richard Newman and my guest this week is Owen Evans, Senior Lecturer in Journalism and Course Leader for the Sports Journalism course. We discuss the states of sport journalism, what US import and subscription-based service The Athletic has done to shake up football coverage in the UK, his background and work at the university. We recorded this on a bit of a blustery day, so apologies about that, but hopefully it's not too distracting. I moved over from the industry about three years ago and uh, I teach across both the journalism and the sport journalism degrees and also the sport management master's degree that we have in Holland um, with our partner Wittenborg. Um, about a year and a half ago I uh, became course leader for the sport journalism degree and so as well as teaching across the sport modules do a couple of the digital and multimedia modules. I've got a background in sport business as well as sport journalism so I try and use both where possible. Okay so you came into well academia from working in sports business and uh, and journalism what sort of work were you doing in the past and what tempted you to move over to teaching as well? Uh, I got into sport the business of sport in my final year of uh, a business degree up at University of Liverpool and I was doing the degree because I didn't know what I wanted to do as with everyone else on the degree there at the time. But there was a module at the end in the final year that was looking at the football industry and corruption, all the kind of off-the-pitch issues within sport, and that got me very interested. started reading um, some Andrew Jennings stuff and also started being introduced to a lot of the research that John Sogden and Alan Tomlinson do from Brighton and who were working along the FIFA investigations way back then. And then it took a couple of years. After university, I got a contract to go and coach football over in America and then Australia and then came back still planning on being a coach but told pretty quickly that no one's going to pay you to do that because we invented the game and every dad knows how to coach so don't worry about coaching my son um so i had to find something else went into a sort of bleak two years doing insurance in croydon sort of less said the better um and then uh, had a kind of epiphany and thought i really wanted to try and make a go of it in sport journalism and did a 20-week fast track course over at News Associates in Wimbledon. While I was doing that, I was working for Satanta Sports. Do you remember? Yeah, you remember yeah. Satanta, yeah. Mm. So that was, that was the era when they were trying to rival Sky Sports News. Yeah. So Basically exactly the same as Sky Sports News, wasn't it? And that was the problem. And, it took, and they took some of the presenters. They uh, took some of the presenters, back. yeah. But, yeah, absolutely. And they also added talent in the form of the likes of DJ Spoonie. Yeah. and other kind of luminaries that were adding their voice to uh, the to basically anything that they wanted to talk about at the time. But it, it was short-lived. It wasn't really built on solid foundations. But in that short time, it did show to me what I wanted to get involved with. The match reporting and kind of day-to-day sport journalism and beat reporting stuff didn't really interest me at that time. One week I was writing about how glorious Wayne Rooney was and then next week he was the biggest villain in the country and I didn't really want to do that for a long, long time. What interested me was sort of stuff I was looking at university, which was the deeper, newsier issues within sport. So I did what I was told was the traditional route and joined my local paper's news desk for a few years, which was fantastic. First 18 months of it was fantastic. It was one day, one day in the office might involve, you know, a donkey derby in the morning, death knock in the afternoon, and then doorstepping a drug dealer in the evening. It was that varied. And if you're the sort of person, as I was then, still am now, that really enjoys variety and unpredictability and not just clocking in and clocking out, getting your spreadsheet done and then going home, it was fantastic. 
obviously it was very stressful as well and this was just at the turn when local papers and regional papers were being marginalised and the economies of scale were kicking in and we lost the subs were in our office and they were suddenly in Essex and we were over in Croydon and it was a pretty fractious time and it hasn't got any better from what I can understand of the colleagues that have stayed there. Fortunately, I found a position with a magazine that I really wanted to, that focused on an area that I really wanted to write about, which was um, business of sport, politics of sport. And uh, that was called Sport Business International. It was based over in the Times old office in, um, by St. Catherine's Docks in London. And then spent five years working my way up to editor there. And that was really really exactly what I wanted to do travelling around the world um, interviewing the Blatters and Ecclestons and really spending a month concentrating on a story around corruption and bidding for uh, a particular sports event rather than sort of the piecemeal match reporting stuff so yeah in a, in a nutshell from start to finish that was where I was at from um, about 2008 to 2016 but while I was at the MAG I was being asked more and more to go off and do kind of guest lectures and, and things like that that kind of happens with a, with a title like that and I was finding that I enjoyed that a lot more than having my byline and creating a product and um, so I started making inquiries into how I could switch across uh, and spoke to Joe Douse, head of school in about 2013 when a job first came up here and he said you really need a master's first and foremost and so while I was uh, working and editing the mag in the day in, um, yeah, in Catherine's Docks, I was going over to Bloomsbury in the evenings to do a Birkbeck uh, Masters, um, part-time MA in the business of football and sport management, uh, which was not a fun two years, but it was, a, it was a price to pay, I guess. And then I eventually joined here in 2015 as a sport journalism lecturer. What was it then that made you think that you wanted to move over then because obviously clearly you found something that you you yeah. found a part of sports journalism that you really loved yeah. and then you ended up doing the, the bits on the side with the with the guest lecturing yeah, yeah, so what, yeah. what, what, what grabbed you on that that once made you want to do this full-time it's a bit of everything really it's the seed was sown I think with that um, introduction to Alan and John's work in the third year of uni and that never really left me it took me to the mag but once I was inside the industry and, and covering those stories you're exposed to a whole new range of constraints that you are not aware of as just being a reader or a consumer. Especially as when you're editing in a magazine. The daily meetings with advertising departments and the understanding about difficult areas to cover because commercially they're, they're um, problematic for your organisation. And then also, just from a journalistic point of view, um, you can become an expert in match fixing in Singapore over May and then you think right this is fascinating I could really focus on this and then suddenly you've got to focus on doping in modern pentathlon for June and then the same story for the next month and next month and you can't you feel like a month would be long enough but it's nowhere near and so what academia offered as well as an opportunity to teach and I was really enjoying I come from a teaching family I was finding I was really enjoying teaching and bringing through other people rather than just writing for myself but it also offered the opportunity to become an expert in one particular area. And that's what I really wanted to do, is uh, to combine the teaching, getting something out of my job still, but also becoming an expert in one of these myriad of subjects that I'd had sort of a, uh, a touchstone on in the past three years. It's a great course. And it's, I mean, it's, it's great because you've got plenty of like placement opportunities. You link up with Brian Hope Albion. You've had some very high-profile guest lectures as well. 
there's there's all of that. I think the thing for me to stress, and I'd say this on the back of seeing Gary Neville's press conference a couple of days ago about the launch of uh, a new UA92 uh, sport-related courses up there, is that we do an awful lot around placement opportunities. We do an awful lot around bringing in guest lectures. But fundamentally, we've got an incredibly strong academic core to the course. And that's because we're lucky enough to have had the likes of John and Alan who set up the course more than 15, 16 years ago. They didn't do it to set up the next range of match reporters, they did it to set up the next um, generation of investigative sports reporters to follow in that path. And I've really probably stressed that more than anything because I'm finding now higher education is evolving an awful lot. And you can't be one thing. You have to offer a bit of... Um, an academic ground and you have to offer a bit of a placement opportunity and you have to offer a bit of digital training. What we're lucky enough to have is a really strong historic academic core. We were the second oldest or, or maybe the joint oldest sport journalism degree in, in the UK. And so I'm, I'm my PhD area is in, in uh, soft power and the politics around Qatar's host in 2022. Simon, my colleague, has, has done it all around ideology of sport journalists. Colleague Ben's looking into crime reporting in newspapers. And all of our research will go back into our teaching. And that really is the differential. As someone that did a fast track course, I can see it both ways. I was 24 at the time, I just wanted to get into the industry. Just get me in 20 weeks, I can take the hit, I can take the loan, I can take the debt, just get me in. But you're effectively a foot soldier that can do media law, shorthand, news writing, and you can do the formulas, basically. What we're noticing now with the journalism industry is it's changing. A lot's being disrupted. A lot of the old tried and tested conventions are being challenged and changed. And what we want to create is those journalists that can both handle that, but also have the kind of general awareness to criticise what they're doing as well as just doing it to get it out and then moving on to the next story. So, yeah, we, we effectively have three strands there. And that was a little bit about the academic backbone. We've done a lot with the experiential side at the moment as well and no getting away from it 99% of our students come in wanting to cover Premier League football Um, and that's worked very well for us timing wise with the ascension of Brighton Hove Albion and the club have been fantastic with us we've got a really good relationship with them and, and their media and communications team and a couple of years ago we set up a scheme because I was noticing that our students were great in the classroom. If I turn up and say, I'm David Beckham, there's just been a scandal in the newspapers, you can do a press conference for me, they were fantastic with it, but there's only so much you can do in, in a sort of mock newsroom environment. This really came home to me one year when we took them up to the, the sort of El Clasico for Sussex, which is the Sussex Senior Cup final between, um, who was it, Crawley Town and Brighton. And Crawley's manager at the time was Harry Kuehl. We take them into the first year. And uh, Harry Kuehl came into the press conference down in the bowels of the Amex, which is really plush now. I'm sure you've seen yourself, your own work. It's sort of the racing car, Formula One seats. It's where all the biggest names in the industry go to for their post-match grilling. My first years at that point were incredibly cocky in a nice way. I want them to be confident and challenging, but they were very, very challenging in the classroom. This was their first opportunity to speak to someone they recognised from the TV. Harry said, right guys, got 20 minutes, what do, you want to, what do you want to ask me? And this sort of all manner of tumbleweed just infested this press conference room. 
And it was a real eye-opener for me. It's only reminded me, back in the days when I was recruiting as a sports editor, one of my key criteria was, are you comfortable with high-profile personnel? Are you comfortable challenging them, speaking to them, asking questions? And right there, they understood that they weren't as close to the final product as they thought they were. But you only get to do those kind of things if you've got a really good partnership with, um, with a sports property that can give you that access. And so Brighton have been great for us. But in the same year, we took them to Sussex Cricket Club and they were interviewing Jason Gillespie. Um, and we did the same thing up at the London Lions. So they go out and we try and put them in the field as much as possible. That's a key element for the course. And then also we try and bring them to the students themselves. So last year we had... Uh, as annual sport journalism lecture, we had Martin Tyler, Jeff Shreves, Kelly Cates all come to the Falmer campus and give a talk about um, basically that gap that we've just discussed, which is you can have all the best degrees and grades and, and uh, work placements as you can, but you've got to be comfortable talking to us. And you've got to take your chance when it's given to you. And initiative is most journalists coming across the higher education will tell you is one of the biggest elements we want to see you take the front foot ultimately it's all about practice isn't it mm. i mean it's all about field experience there's a lot of i think when you get your first jobs so full disclaimer i guess like i probably don't, haven't said it on a podcast before but i am i have a sports journalist background so when you get your first job i think you just get thrown in the deep end and you end up finding yourself in this real bun fight mix zone where there's plenty of very very confident and bullshit and protective and territorial journalists it's a very much a sink or swim mentality when you get to those areas so i guess like you just don't know it until you get to these these points and i think it's definitely about like finding those skills sort of i don't know you kind of like integrate yourself into it and and know when to know when to ask questions those sort of skills are things you can't actually survive yeah it's, it's just it's quite hard to learn yeah. those things though but do you, what sort of warnings do you sort of give to your students about that just from the guest lectures i guess well we'll give them multiple mock scenarios but we won't find out until we take them out in the first years why we don't wait until the third year before we put them in front of yeah. people but we we do multiple exercises but you, can't, you can only do so much. And we were lucky to be nationally recognised by the NCTJ, which is the national body that, um, for newspaper of journalism that um, accredits us, for the innovation of that partnership where we take our students over there to do that because everyone's got their story about when they froze. Everyone. I've got mine, I'm sure. Have you, has it ever happened to you? Yeah, it happened with me with Jose Mourinho, actually. Right, OK, yeah, absolutely. And so my third year, two years ago, the first guy in the apprenticeship, Smooth as silk as a student, right? One of those guys that's mature beyond his years. Grade A, NCTJ gold. Um, his only flaw, it turned out, was that he was a Manchester United fan and that he was on the Brighton apprenticeship. And he said he was really nervous in the day leading up. It was a Friday night game, Manchester United-Brighton. All day, he was coming out in blotches all around his face. And, and he's in, he said to me, I didn't want to ask him a bad question because I thought he was going to take the mickey out of me and straight away from being this grade a student i suddenly felt like something's missing here because you're actually having all the wrong instincts but it was only that confrontation that was going to happen that night that was bringing out these kind of visceral um nerves you know this kind of feeling that actually the game's changed it's not just eastbourne Barrow's assistant manager it's this guy who i've seen on the team who's manager of my team who i've loved as a fan and actually 
the big thing there is what we're talking about is that evolution from fan to fan with typewriter to fan with typewriter to objective reporter. That's the journey that a lot of them go from. And you can't, I don't believe you can do that exclusively in a, in a classroom newsroom. It just doesn't happen because that, there's that sort of magical missing element that you can only get from being in the field. However, you can build up to it. And that's what we do. I mean, they see a lot of the dressing rooms and non-league grounds and Eastbourne Eagles Speedway, and they, they get used to being in that professional role and mode of post-match, post-event questioning. And then if they're still nervous in the third year, they're still nervous in the third year, but they're not picking up their degree going into their job. And then the editor's saying, right, I need to get 400 quotes from him. You need to file it back to me in 20 minutes. They're not making that phone call back that you and I would have dreaded in the past, which is, I didn't get the story. Yeah. And, and everything about that, from you walk to your car, the sort of three or four times you press ring but don't, everything about that is just gut-wrenching. Hopefully we're wrenching guts before they leave the degree yeah, eventually um, I don't know if you find the same sort of thing we, you know, speaking to high profile people in sport as well that you see again on the news all the time but it becomes part of your job so yeah. eventually there's no aura about them at all they're just like someone you have to go and get the job done and then you go and, there's, and you, you're, not, you're not there thinking oh that's Cristiano Ronaldo in front of me or, or whoever these other people are like superstars they just become like a thing where it actually does become normal eventually yeah absolutely it does and actually I think from that point of view there's a couple of things that I would suggest to anyone once they're on my course, even if they're thinking about it. For as long as I've uh, been interested in sport, I've always been interested in rugby, tennis and football. And the real kind of advancement I made as a sport journalist was when I started covering sports outside of my favourite area. Because then you really just have to concentrate on your technique and you have to understand that the angle that you've got to look for, you, you tend to not take the pre-event research as given because you're such a fan anyway, you know it. For me, it's not that I that I'm not a fan of, I actively dislike Formula One, but I had to go and cover a lot of Formula One when I went with the magazine. I went to, both times, went to Singapore and Barcelona to cover the Grand Prix and was um, really just, right, I've, I'm here for a job. So I know I've got a, three or four features that I've got to get out of this. I've got to get four or five interviews. I'm here for three days. How am I going to map this out? And the first time I did that, I used the templates and practices back into the football and the tennis and the rugby world. Because you start to realise that actually there's an actual trade here. A trade that's as old as time that you need to see out and do as a professional. And so that's one thing I'll try and do to anyone coming in. Like I say, 9 out of 10 will be football and then Premier League first and foremost. I always ask them to have a plan B up their sleeve. We've had some that have come in as football fans, but we had a really good example of one coming in who was also an esports connoisseur. I know nothing about it, but I really actively encouraged him to do it as his dissertation topic because I knew that there's a way to get onto the sports desk and then shuffle across rather than wait in a very long line for the football reporter roles. And he did that for, he did the dark side of esports in LA. We were working on it for about a year and sort of divorces and crime and all this kind of real human stories. When he was graduated, he was appointed the first esports reporter on a national sports desk at the Mail, uh, Daily Mail. So having a second sport is a huge element. So anyone coming into it, so it's open days, get it in the bank now. The other thing I'd say, and I used to die on this hill quite a lot, I'm not going to anymore, but as three years as a news reporter, if you go off and do a death knock or if you doorstep a drug dealer, that's properly intimidating. And you've suddenly been given a perspective that when it's your turn to ask Tony Pulis a question about his defensive tactics, 
it's not a big deal at all because you, you're not under threat in any way, shape or form. You're not worried about upsetting people. You're not worried about genuine fear about a really high-end human environment that you're about to go into that you often come across with news, especially on the crime desk. It really puts into perspective sport. And that's fine. It's not to denigrate sport in any way, but it really helps you as the reporter to lose that inhibition. I didn't have any of it. If I saw Ashley Cole, he's just a professional doing a thing. He's not someone that might attack me because he's just been given, or his partner's just been given 20 years, and I've got to get a snatch of him outside the magistrate's court, you know, so not magistrate, Crown Court. That is two things that I'd um, suggest. I think one's a lot more practical than the other because I know that not so many people are going through the local paper route anymore. But it's that exercise in losing your inhibitions and getting the quotes. Talking about the sports journalism industry, it's probably... I think it's the most fascinating time that I can remember since I wanted to get into it um, because the athletic has really shaken things up. So for people who don't know, this is a, a sports subscription website which has come over from the USA, very popular over there. Um, now it's here, focused on quality, long-form sports writing. Yeah, it will have some exclusive stories um, as well. Premier League teams all of their own writers. They've taken some of the biggest talent from newspapers uh, and employed them on huge wages. And it's supposed to be trying to make things quite local as well. So bringing back that sort of local journalism. What do you what do you make of it all? Because it, it's kind of it's really has it. I mean, we've heard rumours about it for a while when it was sort of coming in and who was going to join them. It's just an, it's just an incredible shake-up. It's something you've never seen before in sports journalism. Yeah, it's, it's seismic and it's, I think it's great. It's great because it's interesting. Interesting times are great times. And so what I really enjoy about it, first and foremost, is someone that's trying to get graduates into the industry is that that's 57 jobs that I saw at the last count. Like you say, there's more apparently yet to be declared. But that means that there are 57 places open on those places where they're gone, technically. Mm. Give you an example. Um, we're sitting here in Brighton at the moment. The Argus, chief sports reporter, Andy Naylor. I think Andy Naylor put something on Twitter about five months ago about how many people have had the job of covering the Albion since the turn of the century. Not the 20th, not the 21st, sorry, the 20th. Mm. So over the last hundred and something years, I think there's been about four four or five a criminally like an unbelievably low number of people that have had the privilege if you've grown up in this area of covering the team you've also got Brighton at a stage where they've never been at really before you tell me as a Brighton Hove Albion fan they've been in top flight before but it's never been in this era of heavily commercialised and the Amex and all the things that are going with at the moment so it's peak peak Brighton Hove Albion time peak time if you're the Argus sports reporter football reporter for the Albion and he's jumped ship. He's gone to The Athletic. And he's written a really interesting essay as to why. And I'll leave anyone listening to this go, to go over and read the essay and to understand his motivations for doing it. But as a result, one of my graduates, 2018, Adam Stennings, now joined the Argus Sports Desk. Okay? And in a microcosm, you've got an idea now about the impact. Okay? So I think, as well as you say, they've put in some of the biggest names, Danny Taylor, David Ornstein have gone across to The Athletic. They've also been very specific in finding a couple, or at least one, big regional reporter to go across to The Athletic from Brighton to all, I think almost all 20 teams have covered a plus Leeds and a couple of championship with big, um, big uh, followers online. Those roles are now being filled by... In our, in our case, one of our graduates from last year, which is great for us. So I think that's absolutely brilliant from that point of view. If you step back away from it 
and look at it from a kind of management science point of view. And as, in the, as an industry, sport journalism, the life cycle of the sport journalism industry has been in decline. Mm. The print model that was the heartbeat of it, we know, it's nothing new, has been in decline for a while. Now. And different things have been popping up to try and be the digital disruptor of that era. And we saw it with, for an example, Vice, Vice Sports, BuzzFeed, right? Heavily SEO, clickbaiting culture type pieces that were really targeting social media usage. They kind of came and went. There's huge record losses. I think 3,000 or more this year in the US alone. Uh, editorial position, job losses there. And so I think everyone within it, whether you're in higher education journalism or working in journalism, has been waiting. Been waiting to see what's it going to look like? What's this going to be? Because the general consensus was information is for free, so you can't charge for it. So we've got to find other ways. This subscription only, uh, no ad model, that really, if you look at the content as well, isn't immediate. It's all feature-led, as you said. It's really harking back to the Observer Sport Monthly type, type content, which is long-term piece, long-form pieces, two or three days afterwards, that are really unique in their scope. I think is very refreshing for a start. But also it's really interesting because it's probably a symptom rather than a threat. It's a symptom of what the industry has become, especially if you read the essays from the local reporters, how bogged down they have become. Yeah, it's a churn. It's journalism have been the phrase, right? That this is, I have to get seven or eight stories out a day now instead of one or two every two or three days. I'll be really interested to know what you think will happen with it because from my point of view... It's interesting. The only thing that you can use as an evidence base is what's happened in America. I mean, The Athletic only published it for its first story three years ago. Mm. If you think about the effort that The Times in particular has put in behind its paywall mm. and the sort of loyal followership that it had and readership that it had going into that experiment, it's going to be really tricky. And there's really different characteristics between the American sport journalism industry and the English sport journalism industry. But you can see the reporters are already saying, I write a lot less, but I work a lot harder. And the quality of the work is, in their eyes, in their eyes, they're getting a lot more satisfaction. And this harks back a little bit to what Andy Nagel was saying is, in his piece, is that the pressure now is to create the best work you, you can, so they say, the ethos of it, um, rather than just a quantity of work that satisfies the demand. What's interesting is that it's obviously ruffled a lot of feathers within, uh, within the industry, within the kind of established hierarchy. And, and I get that. A lot of it harks back to this problematic quote. I don't know if you saw it. Did you, the, from one of the co-owners? Yeah, so I've actually got it written down here. Oh, okay. so this is what he said to you in the New York Times. It's Alex Mether. He's the US chief executive. He said he has apologised for this afterwards. But he said, we will wait every local paper out and let them continuously bleed until we are the last one standing we will suck them dry of their best talent at every moment we will make business extremely difficult for them right and that's yeah, just, again it's criminal yeah it's criminal to say that and what was interesting was to look at his background before um, yeah, so from what I could tell, he was part of the Stravis network, and that's where he met Adam. Was it um, Hansman, I think, is the other Adam that's a co-owner of this? They weren't necessarily dyed-in-the-wall newspaper men, because a newspaper person would never talk about it in those terms. We're already sad enough that locals and regionals are in the state that they are, let alone the way nationals are struggling under the pressure. And so it was just stupid, right? And, and he's come out and said as much. He's not going to come out and talk about yeah. this in the future, and his co-owner is very happy about that fact. 
And so a lot of people will point to that, and I get that at the moment. I think a lot of people have had their noses put out of joint at the moment, certainly from the evidence from Twitter, is the fanfare of the launch, uh, this idea that it's the it's the best place to go for football journalism and it's going to have the best... I mean, it's quite American in its, in its pomp and ceremony, isn't it? Really, I tend to look past the past any of that now when I see it on Twitter you judge on its merits you wait until the work comes out don't you um, so I think that's probably put people's noses out of joint plus also the fact that some of their best colleagues have been taken from their own sports desk and onto this so I mean all of that is understandable however you can't get away from the fact that the industry's needed refreshing it's needed something to adapt from the former print based business model to something that acclimatises better with the current digital environment this might be it I don't know if it'll be it. I expect it'll be around in another year or two. They invested $90 million into it so far, so you wouldn't scrap that after a year. And it's a solid-looking business. They're at 600,000 subscribers. They're expecting a million by the end of the year. So you expect it to be around. I don't expect it to diversify into League Two football or um, grassroots sport in England or um, anything that goes below the Premier League line. Um, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. I expect it to be around and to thrive, but I don't think it will go down into those areas. However, that would be where I'd hope a rival comes in with the same business model that caters to that audience. You know? do, do you think um, we won't really know if it's successful for a while because the, they entice everyone in with a month free trial and half yeah, price for yeah. a year? So yeah. I guess in two years' time, one might know how, how good it is. Do you think there's a problem with um, so the idea, the quality of the writing is really good? I'd say from what I've read so far, you can read quite, you can, and you can read across a range of Premier League. People, a lot of fans of the clubs would read a lot of Premier League copy, right? Yeah. A lot of Premier League features, and there, there's interesting stuff on there. There isn't any match reports, and I think match, a lot of people don't really read match reports anymore. Anymore, anyway. Do you think it's a bit of a problem with the the fact that the delayed reaction to matches, though? Do you kind of expect that we still got all these athletic journalists in the press box? Yeah. They're kind of. It's a bit weird being paid to go and do something and not actually produce any work immediately from it or even for the next few days. It's a bit of an odd situation there. They don't even go to the press conference, they do live chats. The fans that are paying this money are going to expect some sort of analysis. And some sort of analysis, I know, just thoughts from the game, even if it's quite lazy and it's a five things from, you know. I wonder whether that's going to be the bit that fans lose a bit of patience with. Something not immediate, but at least something to read with a coffee the next morning. Mm. I would instinctively agree with that, but then... I always worry that I bring my own baggage to this kind of conversation in that why have they got a seat in the press box? If they're not down there to immediately file something on the whistle, if they aren't there there to get quotes after the match, um, why are they taking up another reporter's place? That would be the position of anyone else. There's, what are you doing here? I'm not sure, and it's one of the reasons that I'm actually looking forward to the new academic year starting I look forward to it anyway don't get me wrong but I'm actually looking forward to canvas their opinion my students opinion about this because I don't know if they ever looked for that I don't know if they ever read it I, well I know roughly that they've never read a match report really we asked them to and look at really good styles and to follow really good match reporters and they eventually become good at it but Unless they've got a, an elbow in their ribs digging them to do it, I'm not sure if they would do it off their own back. Like I say, I know what I think because of how I've been conditioned to think of being part of the industry for a while, but 
I don't know if it instinctively meets the demands of what the next generation coming through are wanting. Okay, and that might be a big thing. I mean, we always assume. Well, no, we. I always assume the athletics from the younger audience, and the place where athletics suffer the most in the U.S. is in the. In, uh, I think Phoenix and Washington, which are technically the younger states, and that's where they've got their worst figures in terms of subscriber base, and they've done better elsewhere. So I might be presuming an awful lot here. I, I, I kind of get the impression it's somewhere between from like mid twenties through to late forties, early fifties. For the athletic, I think so. Potentially, yeah, potentially. Although a lot of the writers that are taken across, yeah, no, maybe, maybe they are. I think the thing that it makes me think that's even more interesting at the moment is how useful were those quotes after the match, and how difficult would it be to find out those quotes without? You think every uh, report's been broadcast by Sky. You think about PA are probably going in there, distributing it. If I look across the nationals now, not even the regionals, and I look at a post-match on the whistle report, it'll be the same across two or three nationals minimum. How long is that until that same feed off the wire is going across all the nationals with the quotes? In which case, their value is completely... Diva- yeah, it's- it's of no use to anyone so I think there's, there's that that you've got to take into account is what can you get from a seat in the press box now that will be of value which is just analysis though isn't it yeah but that's, but that's kind of you kind of feel like that's if they cover them all week then you should be best placed to then give someone not immediate analysis but yeah fairly soon on analysis and it's whether they want that straight away as well I mean I, I was really I was listening to a podcast with um, Alex Kajelski yesterday but he's uh, just he's the guy the young hotshot time sports editor yeah. absolute absolutely brilliant career in relatively short time um Fantastic opportunity. Got to assemble his own uh, staff of editors, sort of a Ocean's Eleven type operation. And he was talking about the types of stories and the ways that he was going to approach games. And the deliberate, the kind of modus operandi, is to really think about not just filing something on the whistle, but give your Liverpool reporter a couple of days to think about a five things if you're going to do it in that form, and then use clips and use established tactical information. Now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, and I noticed. Was it, it was Norwich-Liverpool, wasn't it? Friday night, first game of the season. Yeah. I noticed a lot of the uh, sports journalists that uh, had, their, had their backs up by the Athletic were straight on there on Saturday morning saying, where's the analysis from last night's game? Where is it? And they're, they're right to do so because speed and accuracy have always been the hallmarks of sports journalism. So I think that's one thing that people really criticise the Athletic for. But if they're saying we're not even going to try and take you on like that, we're going to try and satisfy a different yeah. kind of content demand. Maybe, maybe who am I to argue with it? I've seen a couple that I like. I've seen a couple that I don't like. You know, it'd be the same as you. Sometimes it comes across a bit self-indulgent. Sometimes it comes across really illuminating. And that would be the same as anything that you find. Like you say, the proof will be all of these... Subscribe on the special offer and then renew. The renewal rates will be really interesting. Yeah. They say in America the renewal rates have been 80%. So I'll be interested to see if that 80% figure will come through. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the newspapers now have to raise their game. Newspapers, online sites, they now have to react to it, don't they? They have to fill holes, yeah. but they're going to have to try and raise their game. Creativity is going to have to be there to try and match. Not, well, actually, it doesn't have to match the athletic, but it has to offer something different away from just the traditional the traditional audience because they still have the same situation where they're losing readers. Yeah, and I I don't have a problem with that. I'm a kind of sentimentalist having been a former local paper news reporter, but also 
it's the marketization of the sport journalism industry and why would you reward something that was in decline you want to get someone in there to shake things up and to disrupt and then usually in any other industry once the disruptor comes in a lot of the working practices become more efficient they become a lot more competitive and the consumer benefits which is what we all are as well when we're outside of our jobs so i don't see i don't see any issue with that the thing that i think this is quite interesting in is issue around accessibility and the rise of club media and we do a lot with club media and it benefits our students and i think it's it's useful from that point of view but certainly in the last four or five years, the really biggest clubs, and that's filtered down now to even sort of the Brightons and the, and the Premier League staple clubs, they no longer see themselves as the sort of, if you want to go all the way back, the utility maximisers, the heart of the community. We're here to exist for our community. That's why Goodison and Anfield are in the middle of all these rows of houses. We were here for the people, and so we want to win trophies, and we just want to do it for you, so long as you're happy totally different model in America where you've got these profit maximizers where you get these guys that will come out and say well we're here to make a profit you know and we've got a trade system set up that we'll get the best player because we're the worst team so we'll lose the last five games of the season because we might end up bottom which means we'll get the best young player coming through totally different totally different setup right but now the clubs are no longer seeing themselves like that and I suppose I'm really looking at announcers like Manchester United saying they've got hundreds of millions of Red Army supporters around the world, that's their global fan base, because they see themselves in the mould of content creators rather than football clubs anymore. They can go to an advertiser and say, we reach an audience of 800 million, let's say, per year, per match day. That's not the language of a football club, really, is it? Match of a football club is supporters in the ground, it's about achievements, your history, your heritage... Whereas actually, when you look at the media packs of the like of Real Madrid, Barcelona and all the kind of really top 20 teams and beyond, it's about describing themselves as a media behemoth rather than a football club anymore. And what's gone hand in hand with that is this rise of the club media. And that's led in two or three different ways. But number one is control. And this is the bugbear of any journalist that's ever stepped foot in the industry. Is really, if you've come across a press officer that has an influence in any way, and that is a broad spectrum, but in any way of how you interview someone and the quotes that you get, you'll understand how that affects the quality of the journalism, right? And that's been happening for a long time now. I saw a Loughborough study for a couple of years ago saying that clubs were investing more, more jobs in their club media teams. They were becoming better so that they could bypass the media and go straight to their fans and so straight away you've got a threat to the independent sports press with that kind of attitude secondly we're now seeing things like all or nothing to manchester city and i think leeds one's just started on amazon prime as well sunderland one i thought yeah i I didn't mention that deliberately because i thought that was all right sunderland but certainly with all or nothing and i think the early reviews from the leeds documentary on amazon prime as well is it's a kind of faux confessional. Right. It's a, we're taking you behind the scenes, but only as far as yeah. we want you, you know, only as far as we want you to be. And it's more of a partnership than a documentary. It's a partnership. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got conditions and yeah. terms. Yeah. And you have to satisfy those. And there'll be a lot left on the cutting room floor that yeah. I'm sure any producer or editor will be absolutely fuming about. Right? If you go back to the kind of documentaries made about Sunderland, there's a great one in Peter Reed in... Um, mid-90s, Chester City, there's some fantastic documentaries. But it's when it's full access and you get the light and the shade. 
and that's when the good journalism comes through. So you've got that as a problem, the club rise of club media. It's about who gets the control what's being said and how's that diluting how good the journalism is. And you might look at something like Athletic, but we're saying Athletic a lot, there might be another model coming through. Someone that says, we're a little bit tired of this sanitised version of what we love. We want to talk about it as we talk to each other and sort of scratch the itches that we all have. No, that's not how it's being presented to be. You know, you see some club media stories saying five things from last night's result and it's super striker, landmark performance, sell-out crowd, and, and then you get to the bottom, we lost 7-1. Yeah. You just think, right, okay, there's something about this that yeah. isn't quite authentic. So that actual authenticity, whether it's through a subscription-only platform or through another model, it doesn't really make any difference to me. I would just like it to emerge because anyone with a journalistic kind of instinct would want to read a proper story and you'd get that kind of nervousness if you're feeling like you're being read a line we've all had that where you're like being read a line or if you sat in front of a, a player in the mix zone and he's just saying one game as it one game as it comes or it's for the lads and you just sort of go dead inside because you think no one's gonna want to read this you know and the reader's got to be paramount so I think that's part of the issue the rise of club media about accessibility about the content that we're getting used to now this kind of, yeah, fake behind the scenes. Finally, thirdly, you're seeing things like Players' Tribune coming through. Did you see that last year of yeah. Lukaku, yeah. Sterling? And some of them are really good, I thought. Some of them really good. But again, they've got control over it. There might be something. There might not be, but I'm always worried that there might have been something else that was really good here. And so you've got the clubs and the players taking control of their own communication. That's the way the industry is changing at the moment and they've got the money behind them to do it while our print model is really struggling to keep up and get the stories and they've been denied by the gatekeepers or now the press officers from getting the quotes that they would like. So what does it look like in the future? If one option is long-form, genuinely interesting analysis that, you know, a lot of the American stuff that I've read is they, they'll get a player that performed at the weekend, really good on debut. Let's say Alejandro Trossard after last week's performance. They'll spend two weeks going back to his school and they'll go back to his first coach and they'll go back to... Now, it's not immediate reaction from the match, which you're rightly saying is something that we're really going to miss if that goes all together. But it does have a level of quality to it that doesn't feel filtered, I think. I don't know. What do you think about The Athletic? I think it's really refreshing. I think it's... I think the quality has been fantastic so far that what I've read and, and I and also find it I think it's refreshing as well because it doesn't have the churn at the same time because I'm so used to the churn when you've read all the articles you're wondering where the next bit is it's a funny kind of like we're wired into that I, I don't think there needs to be there is that criticism about the analysis I don't think there needs to be something on the whistle I don't think there even needs to be something that night but I, I am of the impression there needs to be something yes. that of, of something that there, there was a presence for your Sunday morning coffee for your Monday morning commute there just needs to be something there which sort of reflects on the game in some kind of way you're covering you're being paid to cover one team you don't have to churn you know more well placed than a lot of people to be objectively looking at this team a lot of them are objective because they're not Brighton fans Andy Naylor's a great example he's a Stoke fan mm. and I know that's not what they do in America so it's, I don't know I think it's a really positive product and I'll pay I'll subscribe for a year 
but it'll be really interesting to see if they have to change their approach a little bit to what people expect without going towards some sort of churn. I don't know, it's a weird thing, I don't really understand. Well, put, put it this way, um, instinctively, if you were graduating from your sport journalism degree um, this August, if you were given a choice between the two, between the athletic or uh, the traineeship at the mail, well, you go for the athletic every time. It's Would a dream. You? It's a dream yeah, for me. Yeah, it's the. De- that, but I don't know whether that's because I've then been through working in the industry for ten years. So right, then I'm looking okay. at it and going, that's the dream scenario. Right. Okay. Okay. That's interesting because to me, it's freedom. You get to, freedom back. Yes, there is a bit of that. We still don't. It's still too new. It doesn't have. And I get what it's doing. It's trying to buy the credibility by getting fantastic mm. staff writers, and that's fine. But I still come back to the point, it, it published its first story three years ago. And so there is an element of um, Bramovich's Chelsea about all of this, is that yeah. you, you're interested but sceptical. I think you should be. Anyone should be. Given the same choice between the national and, and something like this at the moment, I would want to take the national if I was starting the industry. It was an unfair question because, like you say, you've got all the industry background that would influence you. But I'd want to make sure that I had on my background credibility and good... Um, traditional working practices but in five years time you just don't know if you make the same choice um the fact that we've got the choice is what i really like yeah you know i think it's been ripe for something like this to really come and rattle a few cages for a while so we'll wait and see what the what the kind of consequences are yeah really exciting stuff uh, we end every podcast with some questions away from your work just some just some quick fire questions really yeah. the same on every podcast so the first one would be what advice would you give to your younger self i'd say um plot a path basically when I was about 15 16 I was a sport mad like a lot of people are you have your careers advice meeting and I thought I'd you know it might be one thing to go into sports writing it looks great the sort of uniform response from family friends teachers was everyone wants to do that do something that gets you a job I don't know if that's the same now don't know if that's the same what I would say now is well if that's what I want to do just work backwards I want his job what's he done What's the qualification that I need? What's the experience that I need to get? Where do I need to go? Think about it quite rationally. If you're 16, everything's quite pie in the sky and it's I go from school uniform to this dream job and I don't really know the link. And so, especially on open days, if you can be quite cold and rational about it and say, what do you look for? What do I need to get? And then not be too bogged down by the timeline of it all. Then I think you can be quite methodical about it and that's what I wish I was because I was just told no you couldn't do it so I ended up doing an economics degree in a good university because that was the safe option don't take the safe option basically is the advice that I give myself plot a path and get there step by step can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? yeah I didn't grow up in Sussex so I think anyone that has should be told that you're pretty blessed when it comes to sporting venues so for instance and I suppose I've done this through work as well but the Amex is a great stadium to go to. Brighton Racecourse, the press room in the Brighton Racecourse is brilliant because you look across the sea, you look across the finish line, you look across most of the South Downs. Unbelievable office, if you wanted to call it that. Um, the whole of the seafront's brilliant. I think, for me, though, the biggest welcome surprise has been uh, introduced to non-league culture in Sussex. It's, in East Sussex in particular, it's really thriving and go to any of the grounds they'll always be good fun I take the students there enclosed at Whitehawk um, I take my guys in their first week of their first year 
and the sport journalism degree. We go and watch a game in the Beachy Herd Ultras, uh, Eastbourne Borough at the Saffron's ground. Really picturesque place. And they are totally hooked from the first week. They come in thinking Mourinho, Premier League, and then suddenly it's about your turn as the Beachy Head Ultra that carries the horse, the statue of the horse up and down and sets the fireworks off. you kind of ingrained into that culture straight away. From, for me, the one I enjoy the most is the dripping pan over at Lewis FC. Um, interesting club in itself. They market themselves probably quite cleverly as the uh, only club that pays their men's and women's teams the same but they also do other things they've got a really good uh, thing around their matchday posters that I'd urge anyone to have a look at Um, also they have instead of corporate boxes beach huts that you would see on the front at Hove Promenade they have those in the ground Uh, music it's just really good food Um, ale from Harvey's Brewery this is just around the corner it's just a great experience so I'd suggest anyone go there for a game yeah, I, I haven't done it yet Have uh, and, and it's been on the list for ages so yeah, go. Go. Uh, what are you currently reading watching and or listening to well um, weird, athletic. Yeah, weirdly I um, read a lot more leisurely stuff during term time and then some is a lot more about reading for work for the upcoming year I'm taking um, a couple of modules around one's called power politics in the sport media and one's called the social history of sport so I'm doing a lot of the reading list around those and I'm rereading a lot of the stuff that I was looking at um, with Andrew Jennings foul lords of the rings investigations into FIFA IOC reading Alan and John's book football corruption and lies that was a retrospective piece about all the stuff they did with bad fellas their first book into blatter and corruption FIFA and then the evening because basically I just want to close my eyes I um, put an audio book on I'm listening to uh, Mortimer and Whitehouse Gone Fishing have you seen any of that on TV yeah. it's absolutely outstanding you know these guys it's just sort of something to really unwind to Bob Mortimer's a bit of a spirit animal for me at the moment it's just when you get too stressed you just sort of watch him for three minutes and you think yeah okay that's how I should be from every day cool. describe your perfect weekend I suppose it's not like regimented, but the last summer felt like a bit of a golden summer. I've been living in Brighton for about a year. We were going out as much as we could to sort of try new things. But then it was also the heat wave and it was also the World Cup euphoria as well. So I can't remember one particular weekend, but I remember there were a couple where they started off with... Remember one time I started... If I can get out of bed to do the park run on Hove Promenade, and it's rare, but if I can... I've never seen you there. No, okay, well, it's not, I'm not a regular, and I don't think I won it that time, but I remember one time getting up to do that, and you remember that summer, it was outstanding, wasn't it? And if you're at Hove Promenade, that time in the morning, you go, for those people that haven't done it, you just go up and down a couple of times, but you're looking out to sea, you're looking up and down Brighton Beach, and then you're done by about half past ten, aren't you? Half past nine, sorry, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> half past nine you're done and then that's me cashing in my exercise check for the weekend and then you go back and then after that it was really about barbecues on the beach along Brighton Beach Hove Beach going along and then the open cinema was showing a lot of unbelievably brilliant like Goonies style Jaws style old school films but also a lot of the World Cup games so a lot of that summer really has that sort of glow of either doing stand-up paddle boarding or, or um, beach volleyball down at the Yellow Wave or park run in the morning, then rewarding myself with barbecues and football watching and film watching the opening. So it was unbelievable summer last year. So, yeah, I'd say, I don't know what's that encapsulates by, but that whole seafront 
is my favourite part. Thanks to Owen for his time. That's it for this week's episode. But if you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss any episodes in the future. We're on most podcast apps like iTunes, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search University of Brighton. Thanks for listening.